You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. First of all, I want to say Happy New Year. And it is, yeah, it is great. Let me just say this. It is great to see each one of you, but it is especially great to see and hear all these kids in the service. Amen? Amen. Parents, parents, do not stress. Do not worry. Do not fret. We are glad that your kids are here, and I wouldn't have them anywhere else but right here in this worship service. I know it might be a little stressful for you in the next little bit, but just chill out, okay? It's okay. I can't think of anything I'd rather hear than your singing and the kids in this service. We're glad they're here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city, to the holy city, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Father, we bow in this moment, and we thank you you for a year that you have given us where you have blessed, you have answered prayers, you have forgiven us much, and you have blessed us much. Father, as we look back over the last 12 months, there were great challenges. There were things that we had to face that you helped us to walk through. And Father, we are grateful. So Father, we thank you, say thank you to all of the places where you provided, for all of the places where you intervened, for all of the places where you restored joy, for all of the places where you forgave us and cleansed us and made us whole, for all of the places where you healed our family, for all of the times that you heard our prayers and you answered even before we got done praying. Father, we thank you for the salvations. We thank you for those who followed you in baptism. We thank you, Father, for those who've grown deeper in your word. We thank you for those dads who are leading their families and those moms who are standing firm. Father, we thank you for the kids that you've brought into our fellowship over this past year. We thank you, Father, for the ways that you have intervened in the lives of marriages Father, from the, for the most minute things, Father, things that we didn't even think that you cared about, when we called out to you, you answered, and you provided. Now, Father, as we stand on the precipice looking towards a brand new year, Father, we ask again for your blessing. Father, there are going to be challenges this year that we don't even, we're not even expecting. There's going to be challenges in this upcoming year, Father, where we're going to be challenged to deny what we know to be true. Father, there's going to be times where our faith It's going to get us into situations where, Father, it's going to be challenging to live out a faith that honors you. So, Father, as we take up our cross and follow you this year, may we be bold in our witness. May we be steadfast in what is true. 
May we be loving to our neighbor and to everyone we come in contact with. And Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable unto you. We ask it in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I am a fan of C.S. Lewis. Uh, I love his writings. I love to go back and read his books. And there was a book that he wrote that was titled The Great Divorce. And in this book, there's this young man who is struggling with a red lizard that is sitting on his shoulder. Now, of course, uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis has given us kind of an analogy here, as he often does in his writings. And this young man is tormented by this red lizard that sits on his shoulder. This red lizard can talk. And there comes this day where this man with this red lizard who, who constantly mocks him comes in front of or engages with an angel. And this angel looks at this young man and says, look, I can do something about that lizard on your shoulder. Now, you need to know that the lizard on this man's shoulder represents, well, our desire to sin and our desire to do our own thing. This, this red lizard sitting on his shoulder represents, well, our old flesh nature. And just as you would imagine, this lizard has been whispering in this man's ear for all of his life. And now he is faced with the opportunity of this angel to deliver him and to get rid of this lizard. And the angel says to this young man, I can, I can get rid of the lizard. I can get rid of this lizard on your shoulder that's tormenting you. And the man says, that would be wonderful. That would be great. I've been wanting to get this thing off my shoulder for years. And all of a sudden, C.S. Lewis writes in the book that this angel begins to kind of turn red as red hot. And the young man realizes what the angel's about to do. The angel is about to destroy the lizard. In other words, to kill it, to destroy it. And then all of a sudden, the young man begins to say this to the angel, well, well maybe you don't have to kill it. Maybe, maybe you don't have to get rid of it entirely. Can we just do this another time? Now, if the red lizard represents those fleshly desires, those, those things that we tend to go back to, those things that we tend to get wrong. Understand what's happening in this moment. There is the opportunity for the, for the problem to be eradicated. But in that moment, the man, the young man has a second thought. Maybe, maybe I don't want it gone after all. Maybe, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe, maybe this thing on my shoulder is not such a bad thing after all. The angel says to him in response, in this moment are all moments. Either you want the red lizard to live or you do not. Well, well the lizard recognizes what's going on. Again, the red lizard represents that sin nature. So, so the lizard begins to speak in the ear of the young man. Now listen to what he says. Now again, the red lizard represents our sin nature. Temptation. Listen to what the angel says, or listen to what the lizard says. Be careful. He, meaning the angel, he can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from, from him, and he will kill me. Then you will be with me, without me forever and, and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'll only be sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only cold and bloodless, an abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it's not natural for us. I know there are no real pleasures, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? Listen, I'll be so good. 
I admit I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. That's what the lizard is saying to the young man. And the young man in that moment has a, has a chance to be eradicated of this one thing, this thing that has tormented him, yet in that moment, he can't make the decision to get it out of his life because in that moment, the lizard begins to make sense, at least to his ears. Can you really live without me? Do you really want to face life without that thing that brings you joy, that, that thing that feeds your flesh, that thing that you know dishonors God, but you really enjoy? Can, can, can you really say confidently that you want to really get rid of me? You see, these, these words, this interaction between the angel and the young man and this lizard that, that exhibits what it means to have a desire to go back and live the way we used to, all of that, all of that picture that C.S. Lewis paints for us talks about our compromise rather than our victory. And as we look into a new year, as we look forward to 2023 with all the blessings and all the challenges, maybe it's time that we begin to think about maybe a different kind of resolution. You're thinking about maybe this year we're going to lose some weight, this year I'm going to get healthy, this year I'm going to read my Bible through in a year, this year I'm going to do things differently, this year I'm going to handle my money differently. That's all wonderful and great, but maybe, maybe I can entertain or put something in front of you this year that maybe this year is the finally, the one time in your life that you're able to no longer be caught in that sin. That thing that you keep going back to, that thing that God has already given you victory over, yet you choose to keep going back to. Maybe it's this year, finally, once and for all, that maybe if it's an addiction, maybe if it's something you keep running to that's not God, maybe it's something that you keep looking for in this life, and you keep trying to fill it with everything in the world, but it never really satisfies. Maybe this is the year that the red lizard sitting on your shoulder finally comes to an end. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. And immediately, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus is led out into the wilderness, probably the wilderness around the Jordan River, very sandy, desert-like space. And Jesus is led out there by the Spirit. So in other words, God has an appointment for his son out in the desert. As we look at this text and as we look at what Jesus endures, there's three temptations that Jesus is going to be faced with. And my job, my goal today is to show you how that the temptations that Jesus faced is no different than what you face each and every day. But more importantly, how did Jesus face these temptations? How did he overcome them? We know that the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 4, that Jesus is our high priest, that he has been tempted in every possible way that you and I have, yet he has not sinned not even a single time. You can find that in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. So as we look at this, we're going to find out that, that there is a literal, real being called Satan. He's not the idea of evil. He's a literal being, and he's going to meet Jesus out in the wilderness. And in that wilderness setting, Satan is going to take the opportunity to tempt Jesus Christ, the Son of God, well, to sin. So let's pick it up in verse 1. It says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice that Matthew here says there are two entities in the wilderness. There is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and yes, there is the devil. He is there. He is real. He's not make-believe. 
He does not have a red tail and horns, and he's not inhaled throwing coal into a furnace. He is a literal being that walks about this earth seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. Amen? So just as much as Jesus, the Son of God, is in the wilderness, just as much as he is there, Satan is there. Now, we've got to get our arms around that. Secondly, I want you to notice the opportune time here. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus has been out in the wilderness, and he has been fasting. Now, if, if, if we're talking about Satan as being an opportunist, well, let me show you what he does. The first temptation that Satan is going to unleash on Jesus is for him to eat. Now, I did a little little research here from the medical side of things, and how long can a person go without food? Well, it's interesting that after about five days of fasting, five days of fasting, you kind of get over your hunger. It's kind of weird. You, you kind of get over that desire for food, and then, and then for a long period of time after that, you really don't have a strong desire for food. But get this, right around in that window of 30 to 40 days, if you go that long without food, your hunger comes back with an incredible force. And not only that, if you don't begin eating somewhere around that 40 days, medical professionals tell us that between that 40 and 70 day window, you can very literally die. If you don't eat something at that 40 day window, it is very possible that you may die. So Jesus is at the pinnacle of his desire for food. He is at that point where he would like nothing more than to eat. Notice what it says here. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, I want you to underline this in your Bible. It's a very simple phrase, but it's very important. Jesus was hungry. Now, why does Matthew include that? I mean, obviously he's going to be hungry, but why do we have that right here spelled out for us? Because here's what you've got to understand. That Jesus is both God and man at the same time. Both 100% God, deity, God with flesh on, but he is also a man. And he is a man who has been without food for 40 days, and a man who's been without 40 food for 40 days, it's hard to get out, guess what? He's hungry. He's desperately hungry. So lest we think that somehow because Jesus is God, somehow this was lessened, somehow he didn't feel the hunger because he's God, don't ever think that about this moment. What we have before us in the text is a man who's been without food for 40 days, and he is very very hungry, desperately hungry. And it's at that moment, Satan shows up with the first round of temptation. Look what he says. He says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, the actual Greek behind that is more likened to since you are the son of God. It's not as though Satan is doubting his identity. It's though since you are the son of God, since you are God in the flesh, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I know it's hard to imagine being without food for 40 days, but just imagine the most, the hungriest time you've ever been in your life. And imagine that in that same moment, you didn't have access to a, a cupboard full of food. Maybe when you were growing up, maybe your family was impoverished, and maybe you remember what it's like to go to bed hungry at night. Imagine that multiplied by a thousand, and imagine having the ability, the power, the option to get access to food. Jesus here, certainly being God, certainly could have turned stones into bread. How do we know that? Well, Jesus fed 5,000 people, 10,000 people, with a few loaves and a few fish, miraculously. 
So there is no doubt that Jesus can simply say the word and turn the stones that are laying on the ground in the bread. And what an incredible temptation this would have been for a man who has not eaten in 40 days. So Satan takes the opportune time here to put in front of Jesus the possibility, well, of self-gratification. Here's the first temptation, folks. Self-gratification. Notice how Jesus responds. He answered and says, it is written. What we're going to see from Jesus is him use scripture to confront the temptation. And in that, what we find is a model by which we can follow. It is important for us to not only know God's word, understand God's word, but to consume God's word and meditate on God's word and memorize God's word. So when these times of temptation come, we can do exactly what our king did when he was forced or faced with great temptation. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So what does Jesus do? And I think it's in these responses from Jesus from Deuteronomy that we see what is actually going on here. Jesus goes back to some sermons that Moses preached in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons that Moses preached to the people as he's getting ready to transition out of leadership and hand off to Joshua. And in Deuteronomy 8, he reminds the people, this is Moses preaching, he reminds the people that God has provided for them over and over and over again. By this time, they are a free nation. By this time, they are they were remembering how God dropped the plagues on Egypt, how that God parted the Red Sea, how that God provided manna and water. And, and Moses teaches the people, listen, your, your dependence, your reality, the fact that you're getting up every day, the fact that you have breath in your body is not because you have food. The reason you're alive is not because you have food. The reason you are alive is because the very words of God sustain your life. The very fact that God and his will and his providence and his sovereignty is the reason that you have life in your body. Jesus responds with this text for the simple fact to say to Satan and to say to us that there are things that are more important than gratifying the flesh. There are things that are more important even than eating. I know that some of you, many of you, have gotten bad news or you've had to go through a really hard time in your life. Do you remember how your hunger just went away? You didn't even think about it? Maybe you got a bad report from the doctor. Or, or maybe, maybe your marriage was blowing up. Do you remember how you went days without even eating? You didn't even, didn't even think about it. It's because in that moment you were so brokenhearted by whatever situation you were facing that, that food was not even a priority anymore, that, that what was going on in your life, whether it be your marriage or your health or your kids or your grandkids, in that moment that's all that mattered. Jesus is saying to Satan, is saying to us, and Moses said the same thing to the Israelites, there's things that are more important than simply being fed. There are things that are more important than simply, simply having all of our desires met. We live in a culture that believes exactly the opposite. We live in a culture right now that says your desire and what you want is more important than anything else. Isn't it amazing how that these desires that we have, I mean, we have, a, we have a desire to eat that may be growing right now, depending on how much breakfast you ate, depending on how long I'm going to preach today, right? That, that may be, maybe, have, maybe you're having a desire right now to take a nap, 
I understand that. Some of you will. I'm, jo I'm joking. <laughs> you, have, you have a desire to sleep. You have a desire to eat. There's all kinds of desires in us, and those desires are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. It's when those desires, when we seek to fulfill those desires outside the will of God. Food, for example. We can eat to such excess, and boy, this is a sermon right for today, isn't it? After the last few holidays we've had. We can eat to such excess that the Bible calls that gluttony. That's outside of what God calls us to do and be. It actually hinders our health rather than making us stronger. We can, we can desire sleep so much that we become, well, apathetic, even leading to laziness. Now, because we have a room full of kids, I'm not going to get into all the desires, but you understand there are lots of desires inside of us that we can fulfill in ways outside of God's will and God's promises and God's boundaries. And that's exactly what Satan is tempting Jesus to do, to fulfill his desires outside the will of God, to, to self-gratify outside of what God has called him to do. Remember, who led Jesus out there? Who led Jesus to this fasting, the Spirit of God did. He's in the will of God by fasting. He's in the will of God by resisting, gratifying his flesh because we do not live by bread alone. We live by the very words and sustaining power of a providential, sovereign, holy God. Your flesh and your desires can take you down a path that causes you to want to fulfill those outside of the will of God. That's when it becomes a sin. And by the way, the red lizard sitting on the young man's shoulder, guess what he's appealing to? To gratify the flesh. To just, to just give in. It's no big deal. And as a matter of fact, in our reconciliation in our own mind of why this is no big deal, we get in a conversation with God about why it's no big deal. Well, did God really say that this is wrong? I mean, other people are doing it. Why can't I? Look at the second temptation. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So I'm not exactly sure how Satan did this. We're not told. Matthew didn't tell us. Luke doesn't tell us either. But somehow, some way, Satan and Jesus end up on the highest point of the temple proper. And this is the corner of the temple, the wall that surrounds the temple, and it's overlooking the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, it was a very, very deep valley. And on this highest point, we're looking at maybe 400, 450 feet above ground. Not only that, but that particular corner was very prominent. The temple would have been very busy at this time. People would have been able to see. And listen to what Satan says. He says, and it, it said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written. I want you to notice something here. Apparently, Satan has a Bible under his arm. That may come as a surprise to you. Not only does Satan know the Bible, he's memorized it. Notice what he does. He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. The psalm talks about the psalmist who's found himself in trouble. People are after him. And, and he's needing a place of safety. He's needing a place of refuge. He's needing a place of comfort and protection. So the psalmist writes and says, Lord, I am coming to you, my refuge. 
And the Lord responds by saying, you are my son, you are my child, I will protect you and I will bring you into my refuge and you won't even dash your foot against the stone. Satan takes that scripture and uses it or attempts to use it to get, to get Jesus to throw himself off the temple in an attempt to take his own life. Now, I want you to immediately see that while Satan is quoted, quoting scripture here, he's misusing that scripture greatly. He's twisting it. Nowhere in that Psalm 91 does it say that you can just throw yourself off of a cliff and, and, and tempt God to intervene. That's not what the psalmist is talking about. The psalmist is saying that there was real trouble in his life, trouble that was not his responsibility, trouble that was not his fault, and he's running for his life, and he runs to God, his refuge. So Satan takes that text, twists it, and tempts Jesus to jump. Now, this is one of the hardest temptations of the three. What kind of temptation would there be to jump off of a, of a ledge that's 450 feet high? What, what possible temptation could that be? Well, this is the temptation of the self-will. The first one was the temptation of self-gratification. The second one is the temptation self-will, self-authority. You get to call the shots. Even though this looks like Jesus throwing himself off, Tempting God to intervene, what he's actually being tempted to do is to take control. We see this all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The serpent says to Adam and Eve, you know, God really can't be trusted. And the reason God is keeping things from you, the reason he's got this tree set up that you're not supposed to eat from, is because he's keeping something from you that you can be God's. You can be in control of your own life. You can be autonomous. And so what, God, what Satan is doing in this moment is he's saying, if you, since you are the son of God, throw yourself off and prove to everyone what your identity is. Prove to everyone that you're the son of God. Prove to everyone, well, that you are the chosen one. In other words, tempt God, force God's hand. You take control. You identify yourself. You get God to do this, and everyone's going to recognize you for who you are. That desire to be autonomous. Notice how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. But what's interesting about that text is that is, that is Moses preaching about another time in the life of Israel. And you can find this in Exodus chapter 17. You don't have to turn over there. Let me just tell you the story. So after they've came out of Egyptian bondage, the people were constantly complaining about, we don't have enough food, we don't have enough water. And, and God was miraculously providing for them. He had provided water. He'd, take, he'd taken some water that was better and made it where they could drink it. He was providing manna. They get to another place where there's no water again. And guess what the people do? After they've seen God do all of these miraculous moves, after they've seen all of this incredible power of God, what do they do? They begin to complain. And they begin to moan, and they begin to groan, even to the point of taking up stones to getting ready to stone Moses to death. God speaks to Moses, says, take the elders, go over, and take the same staff that you parted the Red Sea with, strike the stone, and water will come forth. So God, in his grace, continues to give the people exactly what they need, in spite of the fact that their attitudes stink. And then there's this one phrase, this one phrase in Exodus 17 that gets my attention every time I read it. The reason the people were, were acting the way they were is because they had a question in their heart. You know what that question was? They actually say it out loud. 
Is God with us or not? Is God with us or not? After they have seen the plagues poured out on Egypt, after they have seen the Red Sea part, after they have seen the manna, after they have seen the bitter water turned well, after all of these miracles, you know they are still asking the question, is God with me or not? I think this gives great insight as to exactly what Satan is tempting Jesus to do. God had not called Jesus to cast himself off of a pinnacle. No, God had called Jesus, the Godhead Trinity, together, had agreed in eternity past that Jesus would be the lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world. So there is one pathway for Jesus to walk. There is no side path. There is no other options here. Jesus must go to a cross. And in this moment, Satan is tempting Jesus to divert off the path and answer the question for everyone, is God really with you? And in doing so, he'd be tempting God. In doing so, he would be exalting his will above the will of the Father. This is an extreme example of what we call radical autonomy. Listen, folks, this is where we are today. The whole idea is is that I can be whatever I want. I can pick my own gender. I I can decide what I'm going to be. It is this radical autonomy that says to the rest of the world, I am in control of my life. I get to make the decisions, and I am the God of my life. That's where most of our culture is today. That is what is being taught today. That is what is being proclaimed. You get to be whatever you want to be. Irrespective irrespective of what God has already created you to be, beautiful, loved, a perfect creation of his hand, no, that's not good enough. You must take control. You must be autonomous. You must be in control. Twisting God's word for our own preferences. Taking God's word and making it say something that it never said. Questioning his plans for us when they don't go the way, when things don't go the way we expect. When we follow, try to follow Jesus, but it gets hard, so we quit. All of this is the idea of self-will, self-autonomy. I am in control of my own life. Doubting his love when things are tough. Asking for signs, even though God has provided every possible truth in his God's word, to say God has been faithful throughout the ages. He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you any signs. He doesn't owe you any miracles. He doesn't owe you anything. But out of his good grace, God is saying... I have done all that is required for you to place faith in me and to give up controlling your own life. Satan, I love this this quote I got. uh, I think this was from uh, the commentary that I was reading. Satan attempted to get Jesus to do something wrong that would lead to something good. You ever heard this? The the ends justify the means. Well, just go ahead and do it, and it'll all work out in the end. Just, just do what you want to do. Have control over your own life, and it'll all work out in the end. When in fact, the more you take control over the life, the more out of control your life is. Look at the third temptation. Verse 8, and again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. One thing we can say about Satan, down through the ages, he's consistent. This is what got him kicked out of heaven to start with. You look in the book of Ezekiel, you look in the book of Isaiah, and we find these these stories about how Satan came to be. You know, Satan was an an angel. He He was in heaven, and he was a created angel of God. And there was a time where, from what we can tell from scriptures, that 
he decided that he wanted to overthrow God, that he wanted to be God himself. So he gets a band of angels together and they're going to overthrow God. So it's going to be this kind of like this coup in heaven. And Satan basically wrote a check he couldn't cash. He thought a whole lot more of himself than he should have, and he thought he had the power to do this, when in fact God was the one who created him, and guess what God did? God kicked him and the angels out of heaven, down to this earth. That's what we have as Satan and the army of demons that we know wander and roam about this earth, seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. So we have the backstory of Satan, and here he is again. This is exactly what he tried in heaven, and he's trying it again, and he says to Jesus, and he appeals to Jesus and the desire to self-exalt oneself. He appeals to that human ego and that pride. He says to Jesus, Jesus, if you will simply bow down and worship me, and I don't know how Satan did this. I don't know if there's like some kind of, I don't know, movie screen playing, or if he's just looking off a pinnacle at all the different kingdoms that were in sight at that moment. But in that moment, the Bible says that he saw all these powerful kingdoms. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you every bit of this. Again, he's writing a check he can't cash. The audacity of Satan to think that he owns all of that, but just, just so we understand, Satan's influence among those kingdoms was powerful. And they're still powerful to this day. So what Satan is doing is appealing to the temptation to self-exalt. So we have the self-gratification. We have the, the desire to, to appeal to our flesh and to listen to our flesh. We have the desire to, to will our own lives to be autonomous, to be the gods of our own life. And then this third one, the temptation to pour into our ego. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. God is the only one worthy of worship. And anytime we get that equation mixed up, anytime we let our egos overwhelm the worship of God, overwhelm our service to others, overwhelm our love for others, overwhelm, overwhelm our opportunity to serve other people. It's in that moment, it's in that moment where you're falling to, well, the pride and the temptation of self-exaltation. Th this is another quote that I pulled. This is from a guy by the name of Russell Moore. and He said this, he says, in that moment, Jesus refused to exchange the end-time exaltation by the Father for a right-now exaltation of a snake. Here's what Russell Moore's saying, and here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6. Just a few chapters over. They were talking about rewards in heaven versus rewards on earth, and he's talking about the Pharisees, and he says, you know, the Pharisees, they love to practice their religion in front of other people, and the reason that they do is because they want the applause and the accolades of humanity. And Jesus says in that moment something very important. He says, when you do that, when you seek the applause of other people, and you get that applause, guess what happens? You've received your reward in that moment. But then Jesus says there's another set of rewards that are far better. There's rewards that are stored up in heaven. Those rewards that moth or rust cannot corrupt. And it's that that we should be seeking, not the opportunity to exalt ourselves, but the opportunity to worship and honor God and to never put anything between us in him. Here's a question for you. And this question doesn't just apply to you individually, but it applies to our church as a whole as we move into 2023. What can we accomplish as a church? What can you accomplish as an individual in the kingdom, in your family, in your job, if you didn't care who gets the credit? 
If you don't care who gets the credit, you don't care who, whose name gets up in lights, you don't care who gets the rewards, you don't care who gets the promotion, you simply serve and love as Jesus has called us to. We set ourselves aside. What can we accomplish if we didn't care or didn't worry about who got the credit? In this moment, Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. That nothing else is gonna come between us. That even my own ego and it can get big at times, and it can get large at times, and it can get ugly at times, that God is calling me daily to crucify the flesh. And that includes the self-gratification of the red lizard sitting on my shoulder and sitting on yours that says, engage, do what you want to do, do what makes you feel good. That dying daily, as Paul would call us to in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I crucify myself daily. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is Paul who would say that that red lizard on our shoulder who's tempting us to gratify the flesh, tempting us to take control of our own lives and to tempt God, that, that red lizard who's saying to us, exalt yourself, get the front seat, don't take the back seat. Imagine with Jesus as he's in the wilderness, Satan says, look, Jesus, you're the son of God. You're the son of God. You shouldn't be out here suffering. Turn the stones to bread. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You shouldn't be out here having to, to worry about your needs. You have the power. Take control. What could be accomplished this year if we no longer allow the flesh to dictate our decisions? What can we accomplish this year as a church body if we no longer let our self desires and our autonomy and our God complexes to get in the way. What can we accomplish this year if we're no longer focusing on self but focusing on worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Or, or will we spend another year explaining away our sins and our failures? Will we spend another year caught in the same trap and the same cycle of sin that we've been in for the last 10, 15, 20 years? Or maybe this year is the first year, maybe the day starting off the new year is the first time that you say, you know what, I'm surrendering my life to Christ. This is the year that I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. This is the day that I'm going to surrender my life to something greater than myself. What a great way, what would be a greater way to start off 2023 than full surrender to Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you, Father, for these people that I get to serve. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you, Father, that they are loving neighbor as self. Thank you, Father, that they are giving of themselves, of their resources, of their time and talent and treasures. But, Father, I believe in 2023, there's going to be great challenges but great blessings. And Father, I think it begins today as we begin to think about this new year. I think it begins right now today as to what is going to be the Lord of our life. Is it going to be you or is it going to be something less than? Is it going to be our flesh, our desires to be seen and heard, our desires to be in control, or is it truly going to be you? Are we truly going to pick up a cross this year and follow you? Father, we ask that in this moment, more than just a resolution, more than just the words of our mouth, Lord, that, that our heart would be changed and that this year, Lord, we would seek you like we've never sought you before. We ask all this in the powerful and wonderful name of our King. We ask this in his name.
Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist Church.